This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two very amazing people, Kate Scotchless. Hello. And Paul Jaisley. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week. Super excited to be back. Super excited to be talking about comic books. I spent all last weekend with my brother and sister visiting, doing all the touristy things, and, you know, I'm... I'm sad yet happy that they are gone because <laughs> as siblings, we tend to fight. And, you know, I walked my brother all, around, all the way around New York City, having him try different types of food that he pretty much hated, except for he kind of maybe liked ramen and he had bacon and eggs one morning and that was his favorite meal. Oh. So <laughs> He's such a Michigander. I love yes, it. Yes. <laughs> but I think he had a good time. Um, and we went to the Lego store. We did, you know, we went to all the touristy things. Uh, so I got to be able to check off a bunch of things on my own checklist of things that I haven't done in the city yet, which was nice. But mm. now we're here to talk about comic books. So let me ask the question I ask every single week. How have you been and how have comic books been, Kate? I've been pretty good and comics have been awesome. New stuff is starting. So I spent, uh, I'm already at max capacity for how many titles I can afford to subscribe to per m- month. And with new stuff starting, mm-hmm. I have had a lot of soul searching and gut wrenching decisions to make about what to drop to make room for new stuff and w- oh, yeah. how much of mm-hmm. the new stuff to put in because how many do you want to drop so that's been my week a lot of uh frantic messaging with nick going oh god um ultimately (laughs) i i read faith number eight which was the end of the third arc of faith which is kind of confusing because it's you think oh there's only been two arcs ongoing but they count the mini as the first arc Mm -hmm. so this was technically the end of volume three but anyway um so i finished that up and it's definitely become one of those books on my pull that I'll get it and it'll sit there and then I'll get the next one and it'll sit there and then I'll read like three in a row which can be fun but when you're trying to decide what exciting new thing to add and what thing that you would be okay switching to trade that definitely was one of the first things that came up it's like okay this isn't super exciting every month when it comes out for me now um so I decided to switch that to trade which hurts my heart and especially you know you want to support books that you're really Mm -hmm. into and you want to see more of but I'm adding books that are equally things I want to see more of. So there you go. Yeah. Um, the The big thing that I read and want to talk about was Electra number one, mm-hmm. which is exciting. This is the first time she's had her own series, uh, solo series since the whatever run it was that Blackman and Del Mundo did it. Yeah. And then yeah. that crashed and burned when Del Mundo stopped doing all the art because the only reason to read it was the art. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this one is written by Matt Owens with uh, pencils by Alec Morgan. And if you guys know who they are, what they've done, you're a step ahead of me. Uh, I maybe should have looked that up ahead of time, but I didn't. Anyway, I didn't recognize either of them, but Matt Owens knows how to write a comic book. And Alec Morgan's pencils are, they're not the kind of art where you're like, man, you have to look at this, but they're not the kind of art that gets in the way either. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't, he like, there was... uh, she has a new costume design, right? And it's basically full body spandex, but with ninja ribbons. And it's awesome. <laughs> uh, and then she has like the silk looking, you know, the the silk, the character, uh, fa- handkerchief across the face, you know, mm-hmm. across the nose and mouth. She has that going. And it's like, yeah. all her ribbons are red and that's red with a black spandex. But with black spandex, she has the uniboob. And I'm like, oh, Nick, screen cap, look, this guy actually knows how women look in these suits. And he's like, wow, you got to <laughs> stick with that one. I'm like, that's right. So anyway, um, this one, it's rated T+. So it's like edgy, but not, you know, like 
too edgy. Like, sure. there's some assless chaps, but they're wearing spandex underneath them, which kind of defeats the point of assless chaps, if you're asking me. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, we can't have I mean, sure, too to much in here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's like, layers really get me going. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so it starts off at a casino, which, of course... Like, she's in hiding or whatever, and so where do you go is Las Vegas to blend in, and casinos, this isn't the most original take where it's like, oh, there's the regular life, but then for the high rollers, they can get all this illicit stuff and Absolutely. whatever they want. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this hasn't been done before. Did Are they maybe corrupt? They're corrupt. Oh, I knew it. So the premise is this, you know, big bad guy is like, do you, to all the high rollers that are like super, have all the money, are like, do you want to play the highest stakes game of all? Which from context is looking like it's going to be basically hunting humans or some kind of uh, like bum fights ordeal, but with superheroes. Super bum fights. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that gives the so, assless chaps a totally different meaning. Yeah. <laughs> totally does well done that was thinking on your feet yeah so the premise is a little silly but the writing's good and i like seeing electra i'm definitely biased in the sense where if you give me a halfway decent electra story i'm like this is great um i can't get the costume design is awesome just read number one just for that she looks cool (laughs) yeah i was just looking at some of the preview art it it's a very pretty book yeah i i I haven't read any electra stuff ever and this just the art alone has me interested so that's that's great yeah i i recommend checking it out i liked it 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 definitely has the t plus feel i'll throw that in there for like (laughs) i guess maybe because i'm used to reading electra that's like electra assassin and you know the other ones that are like very r-rated electra books and this one's (laughs) like i'm gonna cut you but there may or may not be visible blood (laughs) right right which they actually work around in really cool ways so check it out okay okay did you read anything else this week that was interesting yeah, everything else was pretty, like, on the fly, reading here and there. I read The Old Guard number 1 by Rucka, mm-hmm. um, which the first two pages, I was like, oh, no. Oh, this artist. I can't remember <laughs> his name. He's that one that does... Leandro Fernandez. That's the guy. And, like, the fr- man, the, the second panel on the first page has like a, a super sexualized violence image i'm uh, like are you serious yeah. and then there's a montage of her essentially sleeping banging and dying her way through existence so it's like alternating <laughs> panels of her sleeping with a stranger dying sleeping with a stranger dying and i'm like i don't know if i can handle this and it, but you know i already bought it so i kept reading and after you get past like the first two pages ish there's st- it's there's still issues but it gets a lot better and Rucka's writing it as always is solid it has mm-hmm. a kind of lazarus mm-hmm. feel to me so far <laughs> and the he does the artist does do really good layouts and the color scheme is cool so i don't know i'm i may or may not continue that one um, okay but that m- has slightly more to do with my current uh crunch like i don't know if it's good enough that i want to drop something else to read it right especially with it being imaged the trade price will probably be good I also gotcha. checked out Green Valley number five, which Knights versus Dinosaurs, hooray, <laughs> and Batman 16 and 17 to get catch, caught up for the new one this week. Uh, Finch is back on art, so that's a thing. <laughs> that's well, a thing. Yeah. see, okay, before we started recording the show today, we were talking about this, and I didn't hate Finch's art as much as I did in the first arc, <laughs> and that's not to say that I'm like loving it by any means, but I don't hate it as much Kay actually put a screen cap of Catwoman sitting in one of the issues I did see this panel in the page thinking like 
what the fuck is he drawing? <laughs> like, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. He I will Finch, I'll post a link to this in the in the show notes, but it's it's kind of bizarro. Yeah, Finch <laughs> and his writing de- his drawing de- desk or studio definitely has one of those little um, wooden figures, you know, the posable ones, and he uses yeah. it for men. And he's like, "This is how human joints work, and this is how they look." And then for females, he's like, "Well, crap, I don't have one of those, and they definitely are just made out of like lumpy jello or clay or something. I don't know." <laughs> so, like in this particular image that I do hope you share, Mike. It yes. looks like her shoulder's dislocated and she has like a tumor under her breasts because mm-hmm. that it's just so bizarre. Yeah, she's very oddly shaped in that panel. It's, yeah. it's the Catwoman. It's it's very and weird. And it's not even like a one time. Like every time she shows up, it's like, what are you doing? How are you so confused by how female <laughs> joints work? Like, it's just, yeah. I think the reason it bugs me less in this arc is he's not drawing females as often. Like the last one, he had Gotham Girl running around in her little napkin skirt with no tights mm. or anything. And I'm just like, oh, this is making me mad. So See, but when he draws Gotham Girl, I don't think it's that bad. It's just this. It's just Catwoman that he seems to have yeah. a problem with. It, she's so confusing. She's she's a mystique. You know? <laughs> yeah. She, yeah, he has no clue. Also, how do her ears move? Like her ears are always the, on the costume are always like manipulating like the way a cat's would. But see, but yeah. this is also how? the Spider-Man question. Like, how do his eyes change size? Okay, it's really that's just, fair. Right, you know? That's fair. Mm. But. <laughs> I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Paul. Sorry, I feel like I kept no, talking over you there. No, it's fine. It's just uh, uh, it's it's interesting because I I was never a big fan of David Finch's art, but then when he started doing Batman, I kind of I kind of liked it because I think he fits. He's good at drawing like the uh, like the technical elements of Batman. If that makes sense, like the mm-hmm. suit sure. and the the belt and all of the cool gadgets and stuff. But yeah, as soon as he draws Catwoman, it reminds me of. Again, as someone that read a lot of really bad early image comics in the early <laughs> 90s, mm-hmm. you know, that, that Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee school where it's like, yeah, we're going to draw the dudes real ripped and buff and the women are just always oddly proportioned and they're always somehow showing both their breasts and their butt to you at the same time, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of thing. It's, it, I the feel like he's... The pictures where you're like, have you ever actually seen a real, real female? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, think Finch is kind of influenced by that school of art. Uh, sure. Yeah. Both good and bad, so. Yeah, gotcha. so while we're here, real quick, I'm so, con- well, this might be spoilers. Okay, if you're not, haven't read 16 and 17 of Batman, turn down the volume for a minute because I'm going to ask a question. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we saw the, the the boys hanging, right? And then we see them in the cryo tubes. Did they die and their bodies are somehow being saved or was that I'm That's super confused. Like, all this backstory about them having died before, like, how did that work? Did uh, they bring yeah. them back? Yeah. They have a voodoo doctor? <laughs> well, I mean, that that was kind of funny that they kind of spent that one issue comparing their, their death stories and how they've, they've all sort of died and come back. Um, but then, so I was confused to what happened, because, in, yeah, in issue 17, we see them, they're in the Fortress of Solitude. Right. right? All in dressed the Superman's up and cryogenic. looking fine. So I wonder, I, I kind of miss, like, did something happen that I forgot about? Did I somehow miss an issue where they explained how they got there? Right. I was confused no. as well. I okay. Think it's, I'm glad I think it's, it's not supposed just me. to be something that, like, Batman or Superman somehow knocked them out and, like, I don't know. That would but make the most sense. Things that'll probably there. be eventually, it'll eventually be explained, I think. We'll, we'll get to the actual answer in 
issue 18. I think you're right. I think yeah. King won't leave us hanging. Oh, pun. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking dark. Paul, what'd you read this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I started reading the uh, Doctor Strange Marvel Masterworks collection, which is a collection of all the early Doctor Strange comics by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Oh, Steve, wow. And uh, yeah, Doctor Strange is a character I basically knew nothing about. I knew the his basic origin story and that he was Sorcerer Supreme, whatever that means. So it's really fun to go back and read these stories that are just like little eight-page backup stories in another comic where you see uh, Ditko and Lee basically creating the Doctor Strange mythology. Like there's one, like the first story, he just mentions the hosts of Hogarth. And then a couple stories later, is like, I'm calling on the hoary hosts of Hogarth. And he's like referencing all the little things that he mentioned before. So you can kind of seeing them build up his his mythology in a weird way. That yeah. said, they're very repetitive stories, so it's kind of hard to sit down and read a bunch of them at once because they're basically the same structure for eight pages mm-hmm. over and over again. But, man, Steve Ditko, the artwork is incredible in this stuff. And it reminded me that you know I talk about Jack Kirby a lot and how important he was to Marvel, but do you think about Kirby doing that sort of all-powerful brute strength stuff like the Hulk and the Thing and Galactus. On the other hand, you have Steve Ditko doing the sort of more elegant stuff with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Their styles could not be more different. The fact they're working for the same company at the same time and they both influence comics in this amazing way. It's kind of amazing to go back and really read Steve Ditko's stuff and appreciate just how good and how different he was from Kirby, especially since back then, Stan Lee told everyone else to draw like Kirby. It's like... Do what, right. do what Jack does. Steve, do your thing. Everyone else draw like Jack. So it's kind of fun to read that <laughs> right. stuff. <laughs> um, speaking, cool. of Cur- speaking of Kirby, um, I read Commandy Challenge number two, which was my pick from last week. Peter mm-hmm. Tomasi writing Neil Adams on artwork. And it's fun to see Neil Adams do Kirby stuff over the top like that. And they go full Kirby in this. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Commandy finds, uh, okay, spoilers if you haven't read it, I guess, uh, warning. Commandy finds Metron's Mobius chair from the New God series and sits on it, and he gets transported to another part of the world where he runs into the Manhunters. So it's all these like deep Kirby references going on in this book. I was absolutely loving it. A lot of fun. That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, also read another book by Peter Tomasi, Super Sons Number One. This is the team up book between Robin and Superboy. It was a lot of fun. I like the characters, their dynamic together. I like that, you know, uh, Jonathan Kent, Superboy, is you know he's Superboy. He's all powerful. He's got he's really strong. He's got all these amazing super abilities, but he's not really a superhero. He's just like a boy who's like figuring out how to be a superhero. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other hand, you have Robin, who is trained to be an assassin. That, you know, learned how to drive the Batmobile when he's like five years old, you know, and all this stuff. So it's like he's super advanced and knows exactly what he's doing. And he kind of um, resents that Superboy is all powerful, but kind of like a hick and doesn't have all this experience. (laughs) So it's a really fun dynamic between them. I don't know if I'm going to keep up on it just because I'm reading already way too many comics. This might be something I wait for trade on, but it's still a lot of fun. Uh, Mother Panic number three was really great. Uh, I think I've talked about that book before. Um, don't know much to say about others other than it's a really fun story. I really like the fact that this issue, they start incorporating the larger Gotham mythos into the book. So Batman's at the beginning of the book. Batwoman shows up. So it's like Woo! incorporating the book into DC continuity, which is a lot of fun. That's cool. But my favorite book I read this week was Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye. 
Number five. <laughs> <laughs> I know I mentioned still, still the funniest title. <laughs> I know. I feel like I, I, I bring this book up a lot just because I like saying it, but honestly, it's one of my favorite books right now. It's this a great mix of adventure and humor and this issue in particular we get some be- some like backstory into the larger story going on where Cave Carson and his daughter and Wild Dog are visiting the underground <laughs> civilization that Cave Carson's wife uh, was originally from uh, so you get this all the background of this the book going on these deeper stories there's a point in the story where they're eating uh, pudding which is called moon pudding which apparently has like a hallucinogenic qualities because they all start having these visions Okay. And, you know, Wild Dog is like this character who's kind of been there, but always been in the background. And there's like this one page in the book where it's Wild Dog, like remembering his his history and why he became Wild Dog. And he's like, man, my life is fucked up. And it's like this great, like sort of like little <laughs> moment where it's like, yeah, Wild Dog is a really strange character to be in this book at all. So it's a really fun book. And of course, the Tom Seeley superhero uh, superpowers backup is just bonkers fun. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. I, I think it's five issues in, so might be worth waiting for the first trade to come out. Hopefully they include the Tom Silly stuff in the trade because that stuff is amazing. But I, Cave Carson is a cybernetic guy. It's a lot of fun to say, and it's a lot of fun to read. <laughs> Man, I, I definitely look forward to reading this. I'll probably pick up the trade for this, so I'm, I'm very, very excited for that. Nick Jordan um, and I were at the shop yesterday and pulled this off the shelf to look at your your descriptions of Wild Dog were spot on. We were like, oh, yeah, that's what Paul was saying. This is crazy. Yeah. If it's you so remember Wild that- Dog from last week. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might We might have to do a Wild Dog spinoff show at some point. So I love it. I love that idea. Wild Dog Appreciation Week. Exactly. Yeah. So, Mike, uh, tell us about the comics you read. Oh, for me, I read a bunch of actually like number ones and number twos and stuff, which is kind of cool. Everything's coming out. Yeah, I read uh, The Belfry, which is a one-shot by Gabriel Hardman, who also works on Invisible Republic. Uh, This is just a little one-shot all about... It's it's a horror one-shot about... I'll give you a brief intro to the story without spoiling it, uh, because you really should pick it up. I think it's a beautiful horror story that's just a one-and-done, kind of reminds me of like a Twilight Zone feel, where there's not a true resolution for the overall world, but there is a resolution to the story. But uh, a plane crashes on an island, and there are vampire people that somehow cause this crash, and then they start attacking the, the, the survivors of this plane. And it's real dark, and Gabriel Hardman's art is top-notch. It's really spooky, really puts you on edge. Don't do what I did and read it in the middle of the night by yourself. <laughs> um, but it was very fantastically done. I'm so mad that I didn't pick up a hard copy of this at NYCC last October when he was selling it. Um, it just came out in digital. So um, I'd highly recommend that. I read Slovenia number one uh, through Comixology Unlimited because they just happened to have number one. Uh, someone I know was, uh, or a coworker of mine recommended it, and I, I read it. I bought the rest of the series. It's that good. Uh, it started a couple months ago, so there's only four issues out. But the story is we meet uh, a, a trio of women who all have these tree magic powers, and they... <laughs> I, I, it's really kind of whimsical. It's really fun. It's very light. Um, the art is very happy. It's it's a very just nice, easy comic to get into. Um, but these one woman has a tree powers, and she, or three women have three tree powers, and one woman meets a man who has bird powers. They're like magical witches and warlocks. It's it's kind of a fun little world to play around in. And um, definitely love number one. I can't wait to read the, the next three issues. Um, I read Curse Words number two, which is the Charles Soule Ryan Brown joint. 
and I can't really say much more without spoiling this the issue, but things, you know, get amped up to 11 as more magic weird shit happens as a continuation of number one so if you didn't read number one go read that number two is a perfect follow-up this book is way out there and fun and that's exactly what i wanted it to be so i'm very excited to see where this book goes uh i also read (laughs) i also read valiant high number one and i only laugh because this book is like it's so goofy like I, so, I subscribed to Comicsology Unlimited, and I so I got the first issue for free or whatever. And it's just like fan fiction made into a comic book that's actually licensed by the publisher. It is a hundred percent. I hate to say this, but it's a hundred percent like garbage comic book where it's like <laughs> I described it to Nick as like it's a comic book that's like eating Cheetos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's not like eating three individual bags of Cheetos. It's going to Costco, buying the extra large size bulk (laughs) Cheetos bag, and just eating that all day. Like, you know that it's not good for you. You know you're going to feel bad afterwards, but you do it anyways because you really didn't want to buy anything else or try anything else. And it was... Mm -hmm. It's, I don't know much enough about the Valiant universe other than like kind of like the staple characters. And so the interactions were really weird. Livewire's the main character. The slots that they filled with all the various characters were Bloodshots, the coach, like the gym coach. And like Harada is the principal and everyone else is like a, is a character. Dr. Mirage is like one of the teachers. And everyone has, still has their powers. It's all over the place. It's wild. It came out this past week. Like, if you like Valiant, you'll probably love this book. Everyone else, you probably need a little bit of a spin-up. Like, I wish that there was, like, mm-hmm. a four-page, like, here's the breakdown of who these characters are, and here's how we're fitting them into this story. Because otherwise, it, it felt a little out there. Like, some of the characters I don't know well enough felt really weird, and they just fit the stereotype, or they just played the stereotype that they were trying to fit. So, like, mm-hmm. maybe it's funnier, and it's more of an in-joke if you actually read the Valiant books. But for me, it was kind of just like, okay, this is Valiant. Hi, this is someone's fan fiction turned into a comic. <laughs> that you know. sounds fantastic. As someone does that doesn't read, I've never read any Valiant stuff, but that sounds fantastic to me. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, they really <laughs> hit it, the Paul. story beats for for um, or I should say they really hit the story beats for the the tropes that they were trying to go for, and it works really really well. I'm actually very happy that they nailed it so well, but mm-hmm. you could have just gotten rid of all of the Valiant references and instead just written original characters and it would have been the same story. Um, So maybe there's some like droplets of references and things that I don't get, but on the whole, it's, it kind of reminds me of the Riverdale TV show, (laughs) which is like, which kind of blah CW drama. And if you like Riverdale, you're definitely going to love Valiant High. I can say that. Okay, so the the yeah. big thing for me that, that I read this. Oh, good! I'm glad that I sold you, Paul, because <laughs> I need I need another outsider from the non Valiant reader base to like <laughs> okay take a dive into this. Um, yeah, <laughs> the the other, the other thing that I read was the Old Guard by Greg Rucka and Leandro Fernandez, which uh, Kate already talked about. But I actually really enjoyed this book. It was I thought the first op- the opening of the book was a little strange, but then as soon as you get into the main story, this book flies. Like yeah. it was, it was a he- like a really really fast page turner. I could not stop reading. When I got to the end, I was very surprised at the end that they went with and er, the, like the direction that this book is taking. I like the little bits and hints of future story, and the the twist ending was a little bit obvious once you got to the last couple pages, but ult- ultimately did not think this was the, the direction that the book was going to go. So I'm looking forward to continue reading it. It's going to be a lot of fun. The art is a little 
jarring at first, but I actually learned to it love it. It fits. Yeah, it yeah, fits it definitely the story fit. well. Yeah. So that was nice. But anyways, let's let's talk about new comics. Let's talk about what's coming out in the next week. Comic books are dropping on March 1st, 2017. Kate, what are you excited for this week? This week, I'm most excited for America number one. Uh, this is uh, the character America Chavez's first solo book. Uh, you'll probably remember her from Young Avengers. I know she's been in other stuff like Ultimates and A-Force and stuff. I, I definitely am one of those people who knows her from Young Avengers. Um, this is going to be written by Gabby Rivera, who is a young adult novelist. Uh, she wrote Juliet Takes a Breath, which is um, another book about a queer Latina. She herself is a queer Latina. So, like, what? We have a queer Latina writing a book about a queer Latina? Comics, you're learning. <laughs> We're <laughs> doing it. We're doing it. Uh, the art is by... Joe, going to butcher his last name. Do either of you guys know this one? Queen Nones? I don't know. He draws Howard the Duck. I haven't seen his stuff before. I'm I'm definitely in this for the character at this point. Um, they apparently, from what I've read, Marvel like cold called uh, this author because they have been working hard on finding more diverse creators to write their more diverse books and have been having a lot of success in doing so. And... Uh, the Will Moss, the editor who contacted her and has been working with her, said specifically they've been looking for a lot of these books for uh, YA authors because the audience is pretty similar to what they're trying to reach and the tone of the books is often pretty similar, especially if you're talking, um, you know, a book about a teenage girl versus a comic about a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. So I think that's cool. I think it's really cool that they're reaching out to people. Like any time you have a uh, author writing a comic for the first time, I'm like, okay, it may or may not take them a while to hit their stride and figure out how to uh, write for a visual medium versus prose. But right. I'm I'm willing to stick this one out. So the basis of the comic is that America has been kind of pulled in every direction by all her friends, and she's kind of now going, well, what do I want? And what she's going to go do is college. And so her journey of self-discovering college, you can see why this would be a very YA typical story, right? Except it's America. (laughs) So she's going to college in multiple dimensions. Oh, no. And so they're going to, they said like, like anytime a character gets their first solo book, they're like, the main thing is we really want to flesh out her character and her powers. And um, they're sticking with her same like signature style for how she's drawn in her outfit and stuff and her clothing style and stuff. So that's, I'm, I'm, excited they're basically taking a character i already really like and they're like we're just gonna go for it and not change stuff and just really make it everything you want it to be i'm like yes do it so do you think that we'll actually get a an origin story for this character or am i like yeah no they're gonna go back and no she has an origin story she had because like i read young adventures and that's where she first premiered right or am i going crazy I think you're right. And then she showed up in Ultimates and then A-Force, but I could have the order wrong. But yeah, no, she had uh, two moms in her other dimension world or whatever, and then they both died saving the multiverse. And Like you do, I guess. Yeah. Like you do. I mean, like if you're a kid in comics, you basically have to have dead parents. We've established that. <laughs> um, There's a beautiful cracked podcast episode, which kind of a weird podcast to begin with, but it's very smart. I think they get really intelligent people on the show talking about why we love orphans in stories. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. issue or a beautiful episode of that podcast. If you get, to, I'll try to find a link to that. It's really good. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So yeah, so she's trapped in our dimension with no moms, and right. that's where she is. 
and so with that, she's. I don't even know what her. I can't. I need to reread Young Avengers. I think because her powers are all over the board. She's got like super strength, and oh, yeah. she's also a badass, and <laughs> and she can <laughs> travel through power, dimensions. Right? Yeah, and she can travel through dimensions. Oh. Right. She. Yeah. No. She is definitely an all over the place character. She. Her personality can be a little different depending on who's writing stuff. So the main thing that they were talking about in a lot of these interviews um, that I was, you know, get high reading these articles about it is how they <laughs> they really want to like flesh out this character and make her le- less of a side. Like obviously she's not the side character in this and really develop who America is, what she wants, and they're doing that by having the character herself exploring who she is and what she right. wants and all that right. stuff. So I think it'll be good. I'm excited. Hmm. Yeah, that's sounds I mean, I loved her character in in Young Avengers, so this this sounds like a fantastic book. Yeah, well, and the other big thing that makes me happy is this is going to make 23 female-led titles now currently in publication by Marvel, which oh, is really? More wow. than any other comic book publisher, yeah. So they awesome. are making a really conscientious effort. Well, the thing that Marvel figured out is females have money. Like, especially teenage <laughs> females, college-age females. Did you know that they'll buy comics? Because they totally I will. I yeah, especially that. if you make things... like Yeah, so they're... I think that's what they're getting at when they're saying they're tapping into the same market as, yeah, turns out all those women out there buying one of the biggest um, book markets is YA fiction for teenage girls. And yeah, it turns out they'll buy comics too if you have the same authors writing it or similar type styles writing and stories and stuff. So right. I think that's pretty cool. And I love that Marvel's doing this. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. I didn't realize that the number was, was that high. That's like Yeah, that's neither did that's, I. Cool. Well, Paul, what are you excited for this week? Uh, a little book you may have heard of called Batman. Um, oh. Issue eighteen comes out this week, <laughs> and uh, I don't. Know, it's you know I looked at my pull list, and it's one of those weeks where you know we I think we've all been in this situation where one week it's like every book you want is coming out, and then the next week Always. there's like not much coming out. It's just you right. know, it's never steady. So not a ton coming out this week for me, but I'm loving the Batman book. So far, the Tom King stuff. Uh, we've already talked about the issues with David Finch's artwork, but I think uh, Tom King is doing a fantastic job. I love this I Am Bane storyline going on because it seems like no one is really taking Bane seriously except Batman. You know, he's very, yeah. that's the whole plot of this story so far is like he's trying to warn everybody. He's like, no, you need to leave Gotham. Bane is coming and we can't deal with him. I've got a plan. Just trust me. And no one's willing to trust Batman, which seems like a bad idea. If anybody should know what Bane <laughs> is possible of, it seems like it's Batman. Absolutely. Didn't anyway. we figure out in Death of a Family, though, that when he says go away, he really means, I'm just too scared to let you get hurt. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I think that that's actually a really interesting point because a lot of the time when Batman does say that, it's like, no, no, I actually I might need help, actually. Yeah. But right. in this case, yeah. he it means, means he's legit no, scared. Please, seriously, get out of Gotham. <laughs> I'm that scared. Like, yeah. I, I think it's a different level, but people are trying to read it as the as the former, and I that's like a really fun dynamic to play with. I think that Tom King is is pulling different pieces of previous Batman stories to make this all like a very clashing thing, and it works really well for the story. Yeah, well, okay. that's a re- yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, sorry. Now hold on. So in in the last issue. He's talking to Superman, right? And he's going to be like, mm-hmm. he's like, it's going to be me or Bane. One of us is going down. It's going to, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, but who do you think is going to go take care of the mess if it's you that goes down? So this whole right. like, oh, it's just the <laughs> two of us going to take it on. I'm like, well, okay, but <laughs> who do you think is going to fix it afterwards if you fail? So I, I don't think get that the. That's Batman subtly yeah. saying, Clark, if I don't 
if I can't do this, I need you to clean uh, up my mess. Yeah. You know, okay. I think yeah. he'll never okay. admit that to Superman, but I think that's what he's getting at. He's like, listen, we both know you're the overpowered one in this situation. Mm-hmm. Just fly him into the sun for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, Batman cannot ask for Superman's help. You okay. know, but this is his way of doing it. He's basically asking for help, and they know each other so well that Superman's like, "Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I know you can't say it to me." Right. Uh, okay. See, I didn't know that dynamic between them. I you read know, very Mike, little DC. Okay, so I mean, this is right in my wheelhouse, and that's Mike. I love that you brought up this point where it's like Tom King is really sort of playing with the established Batman mythos in a way to kind of create something new. You know, it's like yeah. There was that issue where it was, you know, when they went to go find Bane, I Am Suicide, that story arc, and, you know, it's Batman saying, like, when my parents died, I was going to commit suicide, which at first I was like, well, that's a really weird character choice that I do not agree with. Mm -hmm. But then Tom King turns it around and says, well, then I discovered that only I can help myself. I can be the hope that I need. And it really kind of was an interesting twist on the character that doesn't change anything about Batman. It's kind of looking at him from a different angle in a weird way. Right. And yeah. I think that's been Tom King's whole uh, arc so far. Like, that's why you can have a goofy villain like, you know, Kite Man or the Psycho Pirate show up. <laughs> and it, he kind of makes it work. Like, it fits into the Batman, the current, like, you know, Dark Knight style that Batman has. I just, I like the way he's playing with those different elements in these ways. Um, and yeah. I do have to mention, I <laughs> John Workman's letters on this book are awesome. And I just feel we don't acknowledge letterers enough and i feel bad because john workman's the one letter i recognize his work right away and i know mm-hmm. my name but a lot of the sound effects in this book are so cool looking to me because i feel like once sound effects got sort of computerized they all kind of look the same that's one yeah. of my biggest issues with i hated reading the walking dead because every gun made the exact same sound in the exact yeah, same yeah. font for the sound effect i was like oh yeah no, this should sound different right but john workman his like his sound effects that he draws. I don't know if he's drawing himself or it is a computer program. He just has the right way of making each one subtle enough. So it actually looks like it sounds different, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's one of those little things. And letters are that thing in comics where you only really notice them if they don't work. Right. And I'm trying to right. become more actively noticing when they're done well. And yeah, John Workman is a master. So I'm so glad he's on this book. Yeah, that's... I don't. I can say that I haven't noticed that, but now I will be trying to pay attention more when <laughs> well, I read that. Well, that's the thing is you don't yeah, notice yeah. it when it's done well. That's exactly. kind of the point. Exactly. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Oh, for me this week, I am uh, I'm excited slash hesitant about Rat Queens number one, which drops. This is Curtis Weeby and Owen Genie. I'm probably saying that wrong or Giney. I don't know, but this is. I mean, it's more Rat Queen story. I don't even know what the story <laughs> is. I think the biggest thing I want to talk about is that there i think this book is going to be a hotbed of yelling on the internet which seems to be the mo when it comes yeah, to isn't rat, that queens always nowadays. rat queens i mean yeah. it, at this point that's what it is and i i, I read something i don't remember i read like a top 15 books that you should be reading or i think it was all about like fantasy books and how like fantasy books are actually a really important thing and that a lot of people want to read them that's why you're starting to see a rise in them in indie comics and eventually we'll probably see something in the mainstream pretty soon um rat queens i think has filled that niche for some people at Image, and I think something like Green Valley works really well because it's playing with that fantasy motif and, and all that stuff, but um, it's really unfortunate that this is what Rat Queens has become, and I'm not trying to downplay the controversy and all the bad stuff that has come along with it because I think there were a lot of missteps taken, and all the bad stuff that happened around the original artist on the book, Rock Upchurch, like that was all really 
effed up. I mean, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this book with the artist changes, with despite all the drama and stuff. And I try to, in my head, separate a good story from the things that are happening outside of it because I think that for a lot of people, this book means a lot. It does a lot of things in the story that that breaks a lot or tries to, you know, change your mind and the way that tropes are approached when it comes to this type of genre. And I think that Curtis Wybie has nailed that with his writing. It's just all the stuff going around with the artists has been extremely controversial. Um, the only thing that I worry about is that maybe I am potentially contributing to something that's bad in some way like by buying this book i'm like supporting like an unknown bad thing because of all the weird controversy around it like should this book succeed should it not i don't really know i want to buy it because i have enjoyed the story i think that the story is important but i think that how, how does that fit I, it's just kind of unsettling a little bit so mm-hmm. i i really like it and i'm looking forward to it but i'm just a little worried at the same time I'll buy, I uh, will purposely not buy and get from the library instead books that I don't mm. want to give their writer or artist money because I don't want to support it because they either have really sexist art or are doing a lot of, you know, fridging or whatever, that kind of stuff uh, for mm. that kind of same reason is I'm like, well, I really want to read it and I enjoy the story, but I also, there's these big elements that I am not cool with and don't want to give money to and... That's my solution. I don't know if yeah. it wouldn't work for a single yeah. issue new comic, but... It's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a weird spot to be in. So yeah. I am looking forward to Rat Queens hesitantly. <laughs> we'll see if the, I mean the artist that they've got for the new book I think fits really well. Um, he's also doing the cover art, so you kind of get a preview of the way that he's approaching the characters. I'm hoping that this this book can just get set on get its its feet planted firmly on the ground. It can move forward without any issue. Um, and it can like get back on track of being like a kick-ass fantasy book that's doing a lot of right things that have been wrong in the genre for a long time. So that's me. I don't know. Let me just end this on a down note before we go and talk <laughs> about something else. <laughs> So this month, our Goodreads group got together online, always open to new members if you're interested, but we got together and voted like we do. And the group book of the month pick was March Book One. This is the uh, original graphic novel by John Lewis, Andrew, is it Aiden, do we yeah. think? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Andrew Aiden, and il- by the illustrator Nate Powell. So Andrew Aiden works in John Lewis's office or worked, I don't know if he still does, and then Nate Powell has done a, a couple other OGNs. Uh, he did the the one that I know of and really enjoy was Swallow Me Whole. Did had you guys read anything else by drawn by him? No, this is the first time I've uh, I've seen his artwork. I've seen those books, but I've never actually picked any up. So this is the first time I've read any of it. Yeah, the only thing that I know of offhand is I think he did some art in the Black Hammer Annual that came out pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's still sitting on my to-read pile. Oh, it's so good. Oh, my goodness, it's so good. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm excited, but I'm at that point where I need to reread some other stuff first. But, right. Or back issues first, because I've completely forgotten where we are. So, March, I think all of us probably knew at least the basics of this story before going in, right? The Essentially, the story of... Um, the the bridge marches and the work with Dr. King, you know, the lunch counters where they were doing the sit-ins and stuff. And this book takes the same kind of take at, on it as like Mouse, where 
the person who experienced it, in this case, John Lewis, um, is telling uh, a younger, the next generation down what happened. And you kind of bounce back and forth in time between him doing the telling and him experiencing it. And yeah. I think there's a reason this is a tried and true method of telling these stories. It, it works really well from a narration kind of standpoint. Did you guys like how he was doing that with talking to the kids? Well, yeah, and it should be noted that the the current day section of the book are taking place on the inauguration in 2009. Right. So of President Obama, Obama's first yeah. days, first day as president. Right. So that gives the story even another element of history to it. Where it's like, this is an important day. And John Lewis's work as a civil rights activist and as a congressman is sort of having fruition today in a weird way, where it's that first African-American exactly. president. So, yeah. Yeah. So, like, the the brief overview of this book is, you know, this is the story of John Lewis, how he became active in the civil rights movement leading up to, at least by the end of this volume, the bridge marches and the sit-ins um, at the various diners in southern the United States. I think it was in Atlanta, was it? Nashville. Nashville, Tennessee. Was okay, Nashville? there yeah. we go. Yeah. yeah. So, that yeah, this, to see all this come together, like, I thought that the, the narrative style that they chose for this book was... So easy to read, like yes. I I was halfway through the book before I realized, oh wow, I'm ha- I'm can't believe how fast I'm going through this story. Yeah, yeah. that was I, blew yeah. me away too. In a, some nonfiction book, uh, graphic novels, you definitely feel like you're learning something, or you feel like uh, you're being preached to sometimes that something, some lesson is being hammered in that you're reading this for class. And this is not like that at all. I yeah. And there was a lot of talk on the forum when we were discussing this as a club. A lot of people were saying, wow, this did not read like I was learning something, and yet I learned a lot, uh, which yeah. I think is, man, that, that means you nailed it when you're writing a book like this. Like, you <laughs> yeah. knocked it out of the ballpark if people are learning a lot, but also not feeling like they're learning stuff, you know? Yeah, so. yeah the yeah. biggest thing that, that made that work for me was there was so much empathy for, for John as a character. Oh, Like, yeah. I mean, this is the story yeah. of one man's real life. And so, like, I feel like there was so much empathy that I felt for him telling the story because it felt so true like it everything felt really real and i realize that's the point but like while a lot of the times in nonfiction books you're just being told a story and you're kind right. of just listening mm-hmm. whereas here it was i was also feeling these Living things it, like i yeah. i had that fear the fears that he was feeling like he wanted to be as prepared as possible when it came to you know the non-violent acts of protests and things like that like it was mm-hmm. like all the worry that he had as a character as a person i was feeling that as well throughout this book um, and it should Man. be noted, maybe a little late in this, full spoilers for March Book One. <laughs> oh, well, um, I mean, oh, sure. also, yeah. hopefully you know the story, and maybe yeah, not exactly. all the details, but... I mean, yeah. I didn't actually know, I knew a, I knew the basics of it, you know, the work of Dr. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King and, Jr., and as well as the sit-ins, I, I had no idea that there were these things called the Bridge March, I didn't know anything about the, like, <laughs> ramifications, things dealing with the mayor, like, or go watch like Selma. <laughs> hey, no, I know, and <laughs> yeah, that's like, yeah. that's totally on me, but like... I'm glad that I was able to learn this through a medium that I love. Yeah. And now I can yeah. tell people, here's a comic book that will teach you something that you probably didn't know, you know, about yeah. the civil rights movement in the United States. Yeah. And I think that's the great way, the, the fact that it's done in this medium and it's framed this way is that it personalizes the events. Because, yeah, these are things that, I think are part of American history that people know happened, but you don't think about the logistics of it and that, the sacrifices that they had to make and the, the planning that went into all this. I mean, that segment where they actually had to train to be nonviolent 
was fascinating because you don't oh, really think yeah. about that. You know, oh. you don't think about the logistics and the planning and all of the the work that went into the first protests. That- it was fascinating to see that. Yeah, that and the other big thing, and this definitely speaks to, you know, where I'm at sitting in a place of privilege or whatever, but when we learn about or I read about or go to movies about civil rights movement um, stuff, it seems like, you know, the past, the past. And so when it's like, here's this guy who's still alive, still working in Congress, that he's the one that did a bunch of this stuff and he was, Mm -hmm. you know, doing it and he grew up and this is what his childhood was like living in the South back then and, like, he couldn't go to all these places and you had, you know, your guides telling you where it was safe to stop or not if you were African-American and I'm like, Mm -hmm. man, Mm -hmm. all this stuff that you think of as, you know, oh, that's in the past, it's not. And, I mean, if our recent politics has shown us anything, a lot of it's still there. Um, So that was another thing that really hit home to me is, like, Man, this is not distant past. This is like yesterday. Yeah. 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 When they would show the dates and I would in my mind do the math like, okay, this the first like lunch counter sit-ins took place fifty seven years ago. That's not ancient history. I mean that's no it's like, you know, contemporary American society. So yeah, yeah. it's very right. sobering to see it that way and that bluntly. Yeah. yeah. Um uh what is your name? Ruby Briggs, uh, the little girl who went got taken to school that um mm-hmm. by the National Guard. She's yeah. like my mom's age. It's so weird to <laughs> think about. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to the the thing that you mentioned about the guides, that uh, you know, in in one point in the story, you know, John and his uncle Otis, they go to the north. They decide to head north to um, where was it? I New York. Remember. They oh yeah, they went yeah. to New York. Haha. <laughs> um, so they're tra- <laughs> as they were traveling through this. Yeah, they were going to Buffalo, is what it was. And yeah. right. so a seventeen-hour yeah. car drive. And the mo- the thing that struck me the most in in that scene is the thing that Kate you touched on about. They had this map and these lists of all these places where they knew that there were colored bathrooms. They knew where there were establishments that would serve them food that would allow them to actually go and sit down and eat and do all these different things that were like. Um, I, I I think the correct word is like sympathizers, right? Um, where they were they could actually go and they were, didn't have to worry about being you know persecuted for just being there as as fucking humans, right? Right. It re- reminded yeah. me of this really interesting book or really interesting podcast episode of Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, which is a podcast all about design and things like that. But it was um, about this thing called the Green Book, which was written um, by. Oh shucks! I didn't write the name down. It was, but it was written in the like mid '30s, um, and it was basically published to say, "Here are all the places you can go as a motorist um, if you're a person of color and you're traveling across the United States. Here's a list of all of these different companies and gas stations and all these places you can go on the road that will not harass you. It was restaurants, hotels, mm-hmm. service stations, and other businesses that would just welcome African American travelers, and it was called the Green Book, or at and- very least, not refuse to serve them or." threaten violence yeah. exactly and and <laughs> right. i yeah. think that that's really interesting this that his uncle otis had had basically a personalized version of that right mm-hmm. yeah so alex on the goodreads group uh posted that the use of children visiting the office having the main character using that time to explain the events of his life was a good choice of being able to toggle back and forth between the current and past the toggling back and forth is re- what really drove home that this isn't long ago. He's speaking to two little African-American boys who are the same age about as when we pick up with John Lewis in the past. Mm-hmm. And he's telling them his life story, but this 
this is not that long ago and this guy's still alive and oh man and then you kind of get back into the past story and you're like oh this is you know back in the days and this and that and the old timey cars and stuff and then you toggle forward again and you're like oh crap he's still alive this is still this is not long ago <laughs> and it just really drives it home again and again that yeah this is this is recent guys <laughs> and what's one thing i really appreciated about you know the fact that John Lewis chose to tell the story in this medium is that they make a reference to a comic book that was a published about Dr. Martin Luther King yes. in the in 1960, right? Yep. So it's like there's this precedence for using this medium to educate people about civil rights, about the principles of nonviolence. And I feel like, and I haven't read any interviews with John Lewis to say this, but it feels like it's almost like him paying homage to that, that book. The uh, I have the What's the name of it? It was called Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King and the, and the Montgomery Story. So it was a story of the bus boycotts in, Mon- in Montgomery. So it, I like that John Lewis, in a weird way, is paying tribute or homage to that by using the same medium. Yeah. I've, I had no idea that something like that existed. That's such a cool mm-hmm. thing. Like, that's a, such a cool piece of history to know, like, to know that that works. I'd love to be able to read that. If if I could find it somewhere in digital or physical, <laughs> whatever form, like, even just reproduced, I don't care. Yeah, I feel... I, like, reading this book, I'd love to be able to just see the comparison to see what else inspired him I f- on top of, you know, hearing ser- sermons and stuff yeah. like that. I feel like there was... It was recently re- republished or reprinted uh, it's like for free comic book day or something a few years ago. So you probably can track it down okay. pretty easily. Okay, cool. What did you guys think of the art in this book? I know that was the focus of a lot of the discussion on the Goodreads forum for, um, was, uh, especially about uh, that it's the choice to make it in grayscale. Mm-hmm. I really, really like the artwork. And I love that it was sort of painterly, like a watercolor type mm-hmm. artwork, but done in grayscale. It actually really yeah. reminded me of the books that Will Eisner did in the late 70s. I don't know if you've read any of this stuff, but you know Will Eisner who created The Spirit and did a lot of comics in the 40s and 50s. In the late 70s, he did a lot of sort of semi-autobiographical comics um, and the first books to be published and uh, advertised as graphic novels. The first books use that term. Uh, one was called The Contract with God. There's a couple others, one called The Building, but they're also like him growing up in New York in the 20s and 30s. But they're all done in sort of sepia tone, and they're all, they don't really have panels. They're just like full page compositions. And this, Interesting. this book really reminded me of that because, they, I mean, uh, Powell does use panels for the pages, but they're almost like they're sort of not done in a grid. They're sort of all over the page, right. and your, your eye sort of glides over the page and makes a very easy reading experience. It flows so beautifully between his uh, layouts and then the pacing of his artwork. Mm-hmm. He, that That is another th- aspect of what makes it really readable. Um, that yeah. Where you just feel like, wow, I can't believe I just read all of that in one sitting. That's, you know, exactly. feels like it took two seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, a, there was a series of panels in the book that I really, really enjoyed when they were talking about the evils, like the mm-hmm. societal evils, such as uh, racism, poverty, and war, and how non- violent protests can end those and they it was such a clever way to do that i don't know how you dictate that to someone (laughs) in in a script i feel like powell must have maybe he took it it. yeah he may maybe came up with it himself because they showed you know uh, a person of color then they showed a person with like you know broken skin they showed a person missing a hand to represent racism poverty and war and it was like that simple idea just was like so clever to me like they they did so many things right with the art <clears throat> and, oh. and the lettering in this book that just like 
it was astounding to think like this is a book that's like a basically an autobiography in a way and yet they were doing things with comics that were really smart they weren't just using the medium they were also playing with the medium which goes to show like this is not only a solid story but it's actually a very important like very solid piece of comic book Mm -hmm. and that's that's amazing that they were able to to mash these things together like the lettering was a whole other thing i mean we can get to that a little bit later but it was very well done like the way that they they purposefully drew things that they wanted you to focus on more in focus more detailed and then the backgrounds were just kind of like washed away by using like more pencily things and like not as solid of lines like it was so clever when they wanted you to see something they definitely made sure to point it out to you without being like pointing an arrow at it you know what i mean or circling it like we kind of do in comic books now Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's so good. Not to say this is an old comic book by any means, but um, some comic books, when they want you to see something, they'll actually literally put a circle around it. Yeah. And right. in this book, it was just how heavy are the lines? How heavy is the, you know, how strong is the person's look? Which person are you supposed to actually be focusing on? Like when they introduced Martin Luther King Jr., all the other people in the room, except for John and Dr. King, were like very well finely drawn and everything else was faded or washed away in some way. And I mm-hmm. thought that was a really clever way to make things stand out to you. And it's a, um, it seems yeah. obvious, but it was clever. I thought it was really clever. Yeah. Ryan on the uh, Goodreads forum commented on that exact scene that you're talking about, Mike. He said that there's one wordless panel section depicting when John Lewis first meets Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., He says, the way Powell frames this sequence magnifies the intensity and incredible impact this meeting undoubtedly had on Lewis's life. And I think that he's spot on. And it's between that and the facial expressions, uh, Kate, and I don't mean this in third person, royal we, I mean this in (laughs) other other individuals named Kate. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of us. It was a common name. Um, Anyway, she said... I also want to comment on the wonderful artwork in regards to body language and facial expressions. The anger in the faces of the pro-segregation white folks was chilling, while the hope in John Lewis's face kept me reading. Uh, Between those two things, like you're talking about with the use of line and um, wash to emphasize parts, and then what you were looking at was so beautifully depicted and so emotionally depicted that it didn't just get you to focus on something, it got you to focus on something that was also super powerful and really drove it home. Yeah, that there, yeah, there were so many things that they did, especially in landscapes that I thought was really well done. Mm-hmm. Like there was a scene where they talked about the church that he attended while he was in Nashville, and it was like a stone. He said it was a baseball throws away from the, you know, the city, uh, the mayor's office or, or whatever it was, city hall. Mm-hmm. And I I like the way that they drew that that whole page because you saw a very good shot of the of the church, which is just on the side of the panel, and in the background you see city hall and i thought like and everything else is kind of washed away like even the cars and the people um it, it, it like they did that throughout the whole book and even sometimes in the lettering they would bold things in a way that was not your classic just bold the text like it was right. a little faded it was a little washed but it like was there to have an impact to say like read this understand that this is an important thing that's happening and i thought that was really great like i mean if i can dive more into the letters bit of it i thought they did this really really awesome thing with <clears throat> they did this really awesome thing with cursive fonts, right? Mm-hmm. Where when it was a singy thing, when someone was singing, or when it was supposed to be dialogue in the background, things that weren't necessarily relevant to the story but were there, they would draw it in. It was written in like a handwritten cursive, um, or it was written in like a very scribbly text where if you focused on it, you could actually read it, but you knew that it was just nonsensical background in the sense mm-hmm. that you hear, like in the same way you hear someone in the background, but you aren't paying attention. <clears throat> and if you listened, yeah, it would become clearer, 
But in this story, they didn't need you to focus on that. They needed you to focus on the conversation John was having in the moment rather than the people in the background, even if they were talking to show like there was other communication happening. It just wasn't relevant at the time. And that like, I, I don't know of another book that's done lettering like that to try to like add little background noise with text bubbles, mm-hmm. but to get you to not focus on it. Like I can't think of any other comic book that's ever done that. I before. can't either. Yeah. It, for yeah. me, it gave me a very cinematic effect where mm. in, between that and his landscapes and the way things are drawn, it felt very much, you know how comics are always kind of like reading a movie, but it with the constant flow and then having the stuff that in comics is often left out that you'd have in a movie like the background murmurs and stuff like that 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 was another aspect that to me and yeah i can't think of anything else that's done that and i noticed that as well as like wow this is really smart or it would be kind of blurred in a way that lets you know that it's not that it's it's something even the character wasn't really hearing it was just kind of in the background yeah i i, I yeah i think that's what's great is the way that those techniques were all sort of mentioning that they're ways of depicting experience. Like that's how you experience real life. Like you hear background right. noises, you hear like people mumbling in the background. You can't quite focus on it, but when you do, they become clearer. And then, you know, talking about the panel where he meets Dr. King. Yeah, if you recall a memory in your mind, you don't recall every detail unless you have, you know, perfect recall or whatever. But most right. most right. of us, right. you know, <laughs> we remember the details, remember like the person's face, but we don't remember maybe the color of the desk that they're sitting on. But so I like the way that the techniques we're describing I feel Powell was attempting to recreate what the experience was like for John Lewis. It's not just giving us the information. It's making us feel the same thing that John Lewis felt in those moments. Yeah. And going back to that whole thing about, you know, memory and remembering things, I think that what I thought was really interesting was he remembered, if we're going off of that idea of trying to experience his memory and experience what happened, you know, in from his mind, from his point of view, as he's telling it as a person, you know, 30, 40 years later... Mm-hmm. One of the things I thought was really interesting was all of the antagonistic characters, all of the characters that I guess like weren't important or weren't like um, necessarily defined completely, you know, like in someone's memory, were like caricatures of humans. Yes, right? yeah. they weren't yeah. real. They weren't shaped like regular people in the story. So all the people that actually had a had like a place in his memory were like well defined, well drawn humans. But then everyone else was like the like for instance. You know, there were there were people when they were attacking other the the sit-in um, protesters. Like they were like, seriously caricatures of humans. People that like one guy looked like a like a like a stretched out version of the dad from 101 Dalmatians. He's like this super hard hook nose. Um, and I thought that was funny because he looked like more like a cartoon character than a real person. And when you compared him to the protesters, they looked like real people, and everyone else like the the antagonist like a lot of the times looked like caricatures of humans. Which kind of harkens back to that idea that they were saying, like, you need to remember to love your enemy. Like, you need to remember that they are human, even when they're not acting like when, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, there's so many things. Like, I think they were they were adding a bunch of layers that you didn't necessarily need to get to understand the story. But if you start to pay attention and start to, like, you can abstract a lot from what was actually done with the art on top of the storytelling, like, mm-hmm. in the text. So, on that train of thought uh simon on the forum wrote that keeping everything in black and white makes absolute sense in two ways and he he says the first way is uh that our generation thinks of that time in black and white images because that's what the photos from the time are in and the video reels and so it's essentially put it pressing play on those still images and Mm -hmm. i think powell did a real for the for the people who are in memory and collective memory and john lewis's memory 
you knew exactly who it was by the drawing. You didn't need a little thing saying, oh, this is Do- Dr. Martin Luther King or this is Rosa Parks because he did such a true-to-life drawing. And that is hard to do for real people, especially when you're doing different poses and different stuff. Just look at any media tie-in book and mm-hmm. you can yeah. see how yeah. hard it is to make in every pose consistently different angles the person look like their real self. Uh, that was impressive. And then he said the other way that it really works is that um, – a story is a struggle between blacks and whites, and so it it is very, you know, a stark contrast. And, and yeah, I mean that's that's all pretty, kind of on the nose, but yeah, it's totally true. Like, yeah. yeah. Did did you guys think it would have gained or lost anything if he had used color? Uh, I think that it would have been an interesting back and forth to see if they had done present day in color and the past in black and white. Oh, that could. But I don't cool. think that doing the whole book in color would have change the story that much for me um i i don't think that they they did enough in terms of like playing with negative space too i mean too often i think there were some scenes where you want it where like there was john feeling sad or angry about something where they would frame his character um as a young as in his younger self like in all black like so it would just be him standing in an all black panel and i thought yeah. that was interesting you could still do that with color um but i think it was more interesting to see them show the varying shades of 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 black or gray or whatever in order to make that distinction yeah uh, i think that and there's a there's a lot of there's a careful line you have to you have to walk around to make sure that you don't have people blending into the background and stuff um a la, you know someone like frank miller who would <laughs> intentionally take his darker skin characters and have them just blend into the black right. panel around them right. which is kind of uh, a little bit um insensitive i think Mm -hmm. (laughs) but like i think they did they they followed that to a t i think they did a good job in making sure that there was something distinct there when they did panels like that for me i thought it worked better just because there's no distractions from the facial expressions and body Mm -hmm. language and everything Mm -hmm. uh color is a great addition when you need it to add atmosphere or need it to add mood um to a book and Powell's work was so good that the line work did it all on its own. You really didn't need color, and I think color could have been really distracting. Yeah, I agree. I think it's far yeah. more effective in, in grayscale, in black and white. I, th- I think color would have been a distraction. Yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of this series, or the, rest of the other two volumes yeah. in this story, because... Yeah. Holy cow, like having finished the first volume, I like needed to jump into the second one. Like I needed to get the rest of this story. And I'm glad that they didn't try to contain it all in one book. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think there there are some there's something to be said about, you know, these real life nonfiction um, types of stories that like you have the potential to jam too much information into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in comparison, I read Hip Hop Fam- Family Tree Volume 1 a while ago, and while I think it's a very good book, I think that Ed Pisker is doing an amazing job telling that story. It was so much slower to read that book because he tries to cram as much information into his stories as possible mm-hmm. because he's only got so many pages to give you, you know, five years worth of history, and he wants to make sure that he's not missing any story beats. He's not missing any relevant pieces of information as far as hip-hop goes, mm-hmm. because that would be a disservice to the story. Does if you're that not, come if you out don't... as singles, or as a graphic so, novel? Originally, it was coming out as just standalone, or not standalone, it was con- coming out as like continuous volumes, but they recently, in the last year or two, I think, switched it over to single issues, and yeah. I think it was... A ve- one of the very few Fanagraphics books that were actually doing that. Yeah. I think it's Fanagraphics. Yep. Okay. Um, and yeah, so, but Hip Hop Family Tree 
much slower read, about the same length. I mean, I think it's like 140 pages mm-hmm. compared to the 124 for this one. But it, I think it took me almost an hour and a half to get through the first volume of Hot Family Tree. Whereas March, I think I read it in 45 minutes. And that's not to say that it's like, it's a less of a story. It's just it read so much more like it flowed so it much flows. better like it had yeah. so much more natural feeling like and they used a lot of space and I'm like I said I'm glad they broke this up into three volumes mm-hmm. because I'm glad that there's breathing room there's like you can experience the book and you can take a break after a little bit like it it all works really really well, well yeah and part so of I'm, what yeah. Makes I'm so it excited a to read the next read volumes is that there isn't an over reliance on words which can be a thing in non non-fiction uh comics a lot yeah where you have a whole lot of dialogue boxes um or shoot you tell me this every time mike what are those squares called that aren't dialogue caption 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 boxes boxes, thank you that's what i meant to say (laughs) i mean not that they don't use those where he'll be saying like i was you know i was scared but resolute and this and that but man the facial expressions and body language carry so much of this that there is it doesn't it isn't wordy they don't need to be they and obviously images you can move over faster yeah i th- i though really like this as a comic versus as a different visual medium like film or television because um so the art obviously it gives you the visual aspect which can be a lot more moving to text especially when you have these horrific kind of images mm-hmm. um because you can have a lot more distance between yourself and the subject matter when you're reading it in text that's how i read most of my news now because Mm -hmm. i can't handle listening to it on the radio anymore (laughs) um but the film doesn't allow the viewer to really sit with and study a a particular still image to understand and empathize with it the way that a comic you can just go whoa and just stop and pause i mean technically you could hit pause in your player and maybe the rare you know comic affection or movie affectionado does that but in comics i think it's more common where you just hit an image and you're just like i gotta stop and take this in and really look at it right. and look at the yeah. scale and look at how are they doing this and mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean to your point regarding like captions i think i i'm, I'm name dropping the only other few non-fiction books that I've, <laughs> I've read so like i'm sorry but another book you know that i read recently was the andre the giant book by box brown and while i think that that book had didn't have any pacing issues it did it was very text heavy in in like giving captions and things and i think that might have been because andre the giant just didn't speak as much as (laughs) most people but they i think he like box brown does a good job of keeping the pace while still allowing to fill it with captions but it was a lot of reading Mm -hmm. there wasn't Mm -hmm. a like a lot of storytelling being shown too much through the art um i mean it's it does like i think he does a great job with his simple art to convey emotions in in such an interesting way with just eyebrows and small lines yes but um it was it was very caption heavy to try to tell the story and keep you up the pace and it didn't i I think it was very choppy because it was trying to show you various scenes and i i think that's not a problem of the medium or anything like that or or box brown i think that's just the information that he had um whereas with john lewis he's able to give his a much more flowing story because i think one he's probably got a killer memory and two i mean when you're telling a personal story it's much easier when you get into the story to be able to just let it all flow and start to remember things right and uh, yeah, even when they yeah. did chop back and forth, we had the advantage of switching between the present and the past in order to do a time skip, and it didn't feel unnatural because we were going back and forth, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do want to uh, point something out that I, I'm excited to read the next couple of volumes to maybe get this answer, but 
you know, as the book's going on, we have that framing device where he's talking to the kids in his office, but there's a larger sort of more artistic narrative element where the book opens with, you know, but it opens with them on the on the bridge doing the march, but when he's waking up the day of the inauguration, he looks at his phone, he had missed a phone call. And then the book ends with him leaving his office. And after the door closes, you can see the phone rings again. So it's like there's, there's a deeper artistic narrative oh, yeah. choice of like he's missing this phone call. And I'm wondering, I mean, that's, has, that's, that is a, a choice, a deliberate choice to do that. And I'm like, is it the, is it going to turn out to be this sort of poetic, you know, license where it's like that's, that's history calling? Maybe it's not anyone actually calling him because he uses the phrase he uses the phrase in the book is like, I felt the spirit of history pulling me or I felt the, the spirit of history calling me at important moments right. in the book. He says it a couple of times, like maybe that's the, the creator's way of showing that history calling him at these important moments. Well, it's just going to be this real life thing that we should have known about. Like, you got <laughs> right. this terrible news that day, <laughs> and they're like, no. "Those idiots!" <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I think that's that's actually an interesting thing. I didn't, I did not put that those two things together. That's that's really clever. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it's the the third book isn't going to end with like you know John answering the phone and winking at the camera or anything <laughs> like that. But, uh, history calling, but like, right? yeah. yeah, history yeah. calling. I, that's actually really clever. I think, and I mean, given the the narrative that they're going with in the present day, that all of this. is is taking place he's retelling this story where or we're seeing this day where when you know barack obama was um um becoming president you know mm-hmm. i think that's that's a really smart way to say like look at history called and i get to say hey man we made progress in in some sense right mm-hmm. yeah i think that that would be a really nice way to end it but don't i don't want to spoil i don't want to do any of this i just want to read the book exactly so yeah. as soon as i i finished reading this uh which was a week or two ago i went on my library's website and requested the next two books and they are sitting on my bookshelf waiting to get read and i you know, do the same thing i always do or i don't want to crack the next one in case i forget where one stopped and the other starts you know it can get a little confusing mm-hmm. so for talking about them so i i that's my plans for this evening in fact is uh here we go yeah oh yeah mm-hmm. i will definitely be reading the, the next two volumes this week like if not yeah. tonight yeah i mean the academy awards are tonight so i don't know i gotta do that <laughs> for but, me um. <laughs> this has so much been like basically john lewis is s- speaking directly to us and being like listen everything's crap it's been crap before it'll be crap for a while but this is what you do and this is how you do it and we get through it and you make baby steps and so it's been a really powerful message of hope for me and i think that's why it's you see a lot more hype now for book three than you did one or two and i think that's probably why as more and more people are finding themselves in this space where they need that message and need that reminder that yep we've been there progress is really slow and it's really awful. A lot of people don't make it to see the progress the next day, you know? So, mm-hmm. like, man, I had all these people are like, we've survived bad presidents before. I'm like, you know, a hell of a lot of people didn't survive those presidents. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we as a culture will persevere. I think. But, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at, where I'm like, man, I need this right now. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people need this right now. And I'm really glad that it's out there in the world for all of us. Yeah, I there was there were two two points that I I think that you just reminded me. I think one one thing that I kind of found um a little dark but actually like understandable to your point what you were saying Kate is at one point uh John looks up at a picture that he has on his wall when he's explaining the history or his story to those kids at the beginning and he says it looks like I'm the last one. Yeah. You yeah. know, and mm-hmm. like th- mm-hmm. that like broke my heart early on in the book and I'm like, "Oh great, this is 
this is what's going to happen now. Um, I'm going to be sad about all of this. And I mean, really, there's no excuse. Like, it's not like I'm going to come out of this book feeling elated (laughs) by any means. But, Mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, like it was, he was saying, I'm still fighting the good fight. And it was like throughout the rest of the story after that, there was a moment where he's like, I read a thing. I heard something. And it was like, I need to do something. This was my call to action. And like reading this book, like really just kind of like slapped me in the face. Like, what? can i do what should i be doing to try to like help people in in the same way whether it's big or small i think there was there was a moment where one of the guys walked out of the um the like training or whatever they were doing Mm -hmm. about how to deal with violent um aggressors and stuff like that and the guy walks out and he says yeah "Yeah," and he says you know i i can't do this maybe i can drive people maybe i can make signs and i think that I like that they didn't put the guy down for that. They, they right. didn't say like some people couldn't cut it. That's not that's not what he was getting at. I think he was saying like as long the the fact remains you may not be able to be there in the front lines, but if you're helping, even if you're supporting those people, like you're still doing your part, you're still helping. And it's like I want to. I, I feel the urge now. Like this book is like pushing me, and I feel like if I read the next two, I'm going to be like, all right, I'm I'm protesting uh, next week. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> we can talk, Mike. Yeah. I, I can help you out in that. I've so. Yeah, that that struck me too as one. And uh, so my my roommate um, has is on the autism spectrum and has issues with sensory issues, where which makes like going to protests or rallies or anything like that is just like oh, this is not happening. Mm-hmm. And talking to people on the phone is really really hard for him. And so he's like, and he read about how you know sending mail and emails don't really work because they just kind of toss stuff out or give a bulk reply to everything. And right. so we're like, we're reading stuff, trying to figure out what you do. And we're like, oh, you can send faxes, like old mm-hmm. school faxes. They have to deal with <laughs> one by one. And he's like, boom, I found my way. This is, I can do it from my basement without interacting with anyone. And yet I can make a difference. And we're like, yep, do it. And so that's, you know, there, I think that exactly what's in the book too. It's like, yep, you, if one way isn't for you, there are many other approaches. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that's probably the strongest thing you can take away from this series, if anything. I mean, having not read the next two, um, but nonetheless, even from the first volume, it's like if anything you can do to help is help. Like, and at the end of the day, like I think these people that are out there, you know, that want to fight the good fight, that are of like minds of you and and want to protest and want to do something about you know injustice, they will appreciate that. Like, (laughs) even if you think it's little and it's nothing, they will appreciate that. Which is why. You know, even if you have little money, anything you can give to a cause like this is helpful. If it's a one-time donation or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like that's that's like I think a, a big message in this book, which I I really enjoy. Like it, it's something that needs to be said more, and more people need to like read us something like this to understand it. I think. Yeah, the whole that you are not powerless is essentially the message. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a very inspiring book, obviously. So, uh, and and it is like it's an. Unf- the, the circumstances that led to it becoming more publicized, I think, might be a little bit unfortunate. Obviously, John Lewis having a uh, public fight with the uh, the president doesn't help. But the fact that the book is selling a lot, I think we're hitting on this point. Like, it's a book that's necessary right now. And and uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's out there. And I'm glad that it's a medium like this that's so accessible. It really is fantastic. And the other thing with it being such, you know, it is educational, is that your local library has this. You know, mm-hmm. just... Yeah. If, if you can't afford yeah. it, you can go check yeah. it out. 
So go read this book. If you haven't read this book, what are you even doing here on this episode? Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like you really should be reading this book. And and at the end, like at the end of the day, I feel like this is one of those books that I'm just gonna start gifting people on Comicsology. Just like, whatever. Shut up. You're, this is. is yours now. You have to read it. You, <laughs> I'm guilting you into reading this book or something. Thanks for listening to the I Read Comic Books podcast. This episode was produced by me, Mike Rappin, with editing by Xander Riggs. Special thanks this week to Paul Jaceley and Kate Scotchless. The music in this episode is brought to you by our favorite band in the universe, Infinity Shred. You can find Infinity Shred at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com. You can email us at ircb at destroythesibe.org. And if you want to talk comics with us, find the I Read Comic Books group on Goodreads. We have a monthly book club that we feature here on the show, such as this week, and we have regular threads about what comics we've been reading. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode at our subreddit, ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. The entire podcast team is on Twitter, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. But a great way to experience the podcast, including our back-issue bin of episodes and our weekly pull list posting, is to visit us at our website, ircb.us. Until next time, from all of us here at the podcast, thank you for listening.